Hello, and welcome to episode 52 of Greater Than Code. I'm Sam Livingston Gray, and I'm here to introduce my co-panelist, Jamie Hampton. Thanks, Sam, and I'd like to introduce our other co-panelist, Carlene Ada Emke. Hi, everybody, and welcome to episode 52. As Sam said, we've been on the air for just over a year now, which I'm super excited about. Um, we have a special guest with us today, Emily Dresner. Emily is the CTO of Upside Travel. Prior to joining Upside, Emily was product engineering lead for Luminol and web team lead and principal architect on the Elder Scrolls Online at ZeniMax Online Studios. Emily has a master's in computer science and engineering from the University of Michigan. She's also a certified scrum master and a fanatical Michigan football fan. Um, welcome, Emily. Hi, thank you so much for having me today. Emily, we always start the podcast with the same question, and that is, what is your superpower and when and how did you discover it? So my superpower is my ability to know a guy. <laughs> I have an uncanny ability to network. I always seem to have somebody in my pocket from college or from previous work or from online or through some networking facility that happens to know some weird and obscure fact. And I've noticed this actually more and more as tech has gotten more specialized and I need to reach out to friends and get an answer on something very obscure and strange very quickly. So that's my superpower. That is nothing to sneeze at. Networking is super useful. Were you always that way? Did you develop that skill at some point in your professional career? More or less, I, I don't let people just go when I move on. I usually maintain a relationship, especially with my old college friends who have all moved all over the place. And a lot of them have PhDs in very specialized fields these days. And I keep up with a lot of people on Twitter, especially. Not so much with Facebook. It's mostly Twitter is my jam. But it's just over time, right? I know people who happen to know a thing, and I usually can reach out to know a guy to get an answer for something. I'm pretty good at keeping up with people on Twitter, but I talk to two of my college friends maybe once every six months, and I barely talk to old coworkers, and I don't have that power. If you're not on Twitter, you don't exist to me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Wait, what are these college friends of which you speak? I have vague memories of people from college, but I don't think <laughs> any of them went on to get PhDs. So yeah, speaking of advanced degrees, I noticed that you have a master's in computer science and engineering. Um, I find it's rare enough in this field to find people with a bachelor's degree and a master's degree seems even more rare in the working field. What's that like? And is that a path that you would recommend to others? So a master's degree, especially from someplace like Michigan, is mostly a signal that you have the commitment that you can follow through with a major project from beginning to end and that you have the capacity to read technical research papers. Those are really the two things that getting a master's really gives you. It's uh, sort of a, a funny little story. When uh, I was getting my bachelor's in computer engineering from Michigan, I went out to Intel, and this is a very long time ago. I was flown out to Intel, and I had a two-day-long interview process with them, and the only job that they would offer me was a help desk tech, and it felt like Four years of a hardcore engineering education didn't seem to really measure up to being a help desk tech in Portland, Oregon. Wow, so, yeah. Yeah, so it was a little bit of an insult. They sent me an offer letter, and I put it through a shredder in the EECS <laughs> building at University of Michigan. Uh, it was still in its brown envelope. They did call me back 16 times. I took little notes uh, exactly 16 times before they stopped calling me for a callback. 
And maybe uh, they just wanted to add you to their professional network on LinkedIn. Perhaps. But yeah, I turned Intel down hardcore and I applied to the Michigan engineering computer science and engineering program at Rackham graduate school uh, pretty much that day. And I got in and I did two additional years and uh, I specialized in distributed operating systems, which funny back then it was called distributed operating systems and today it's called the cloud. So I was <laughs> apparently just about 15 years ahead of my time. Uh, I thought that giant computers were really cool, and I wanted to build things that were so big they spanned the planet. So uh, getting a master's degree gave me some of the deeper algorithmic knowledge to be able to do that, but I didn't use some of that knowledge that I got until almost 10 years after I got my degree. It was just years ahead of its time. I ended up spending a lot of time in security instead because I was doing operating systems and a lot of security is actually at the operating system level. And I liked fiddly algorithms and, you know, crypto is just a lot of fiddly algorithms. Yeah, but I don't know, it's just a, a badge of a thing that I did and I had to pay for, which I did in cash. And time and opportunity and costs. And opportunity costs. I don't know how people can do that, honestly. In my teens and 20s, I was a big fucking mess, and there's no way I could have. I, I ended up dropping out of college, running out of money and dropping out of college. So I have respect for people who could finish that at such a young age and know themselves enough to do the work, because I definitely was not capable of that. Same here. I went to college twice and dropped out twice before the third time stuck. And the third time was when I went back at 27, and I was highly motivated after having a bunch of crap jobs to actually do the work. So the second part of Sam's question, Emily, was is that something you recommend for other people? Uh, it depends. I think if you are a woman in engineering, I do highly recommend getting the master's degree. It helps when you're just starting out to pull your resume out from the rest of the pack. It's just a little bit of a nudge that says, hey, I have this much more training. I think about problems in this slightly different and deeper way. And if you're your woman or you're a person of color, then, yeah, I actually do recommend that you get the master's degree. I don't recommend you get the Ph.D. until unless you want to go into data science, then I strongly recommend you get the Ph.D. actually. But if you just want to go into straight engineering or engineering management, uh, I do recommend the master's degree. For people who just, it feels like you need to get your resume onto the top of that stack to get a second look. It served me really well for, I don't know, almost a decade of just being able to get my name in front of a hiring manager just that little bit much easier than if I just would have had my bachelor's. I was not offered any more help desk jobs from Intel after that. Let's put it that way. <laughs> it's almost like you're saying that uh, women and other underrepresented minorities have to work harder to be seen as just as good. What? <laughs> in tech? But it's a meritocracy, uh, Sam. Come on. Right. So, yes, you're a woman in engineering. It's just it is not a meritocracy out there, unfortunately. And these little things help. I've heard some people tell stories about being told that they were overqualified because they had like too advanced of an degree. Is that not something that you've personally experienced? So I've never been told that I am too qualified because I had the master's degree, but I've always sort of pitched to the top, right? So I'm like never interested in those intro positions, always interested in those senior positions, so it was never a topic that came up. There was other topics that came up, but you are overqualified has never been one of them. 
was everything easy for you after you got that master's degree? What are some of the struggles? I, I'm sure the answer is no. So what were some of the struggles you faced even being on the top of that pile of resumes? I never really had problem with the interviewing part of the getting through the door. It was always after getting through the door that the cultural problems really started to sink in. If you could stand up at a board and write code off the top of your head in a number of different languages, and my jam was always straight up C, and I can still write code on the board straight up C even today. And you've memorized all the algorithm questions and all the algorithm patterns and all that. It's getting through the interviews, not really that hard. It's after being in the job that uh, the challenges start to emerge. Uh, for much of my career, I was the only woman, uh, not just on the team, but in the department. In fact, that was that way until I was able to actually start hiring women, actually, believe it or not. Until I was in the driver's seat to make hiring decisions, I actually, I'm, I'm trying to think. One job I had that there was a woman on the team, but I'm just like ticking off all of my positions in my head going all the way back to the beginning of time. And my first job I ever had, I had a woman manager, but it was hospital IT. And that's a different world because it just is when you're living in a world of nursing and doctors, then, you know, they have a different sort of take and position on things, which is something I didn't realize. But if I look at my second job, my third job, my fourth job did have women on teams, my fifth job, and then my sixth job where I was finally a hiring manager, out of all of those there was only one that there was another woman on the team and there was two. Yeah. So throughout my entire career, it wasn't so much the interview process or the callback process or getting in front of hiring managers process or even getting in the DAR process. On the team, there were never any peers. It was interesting. There's never even peers on the team or in team leadership or in product or you usually have to go out to marketing before you actually found any other women that happened to be on the team. And then uh, once I was in the driver's seat where I could start making some hiring decisions, yes, you know, and resumes got to me, I started hiring women, which is something I carry along with me through my career now. Did you have any role models when you were coming up? If there weren't very many women in the field, who did you look up to? My mom. So my mom has a PhD in molecular pathology. She's a director of pathology and associate professor at University of Maryland, Baltimore. And she actually didn't get her PhD until she was in her late 30s. So well, when I was around. But the uh, story is she went to Michigan Tech and she actually wanted to be a plant biologist. And she got into the PhD program at Michigan Tech for plant biology and just before she started her program, they yanked her position and all of her funding out from underneath her uh, because she was informed that a friend of the dean for the program had a son and they needed to find him a place. And because she was a woman, they were going to prefer him over her. And if she wanted to do plant biology, she had to leave. So she was a medical tech, and then she went back and got her PhD at Wayne State, and then she was head of one of the major labs at the American Red Cross, and then she moved to the University of Maryland, Baltimore. My mom's always been a symbol of perseverance against pretty much everything, and uh, she's still there today. So that's who I look up to. That story is unbelievable, but it's really not unbelievable. It's just really sad. But It, it was 1971. Yeah. Right. 
1971, and then it, you know, I got a reflection of it in 1991, and I have a 12-year-old daughter who wants to go into applied mathematics, and we will see it again in six years. So it sounds like you experienced a lot of isolation as uh, mostly being the only woman on your team. I've seen a lot of chatter on Twitter this week. Uh, Marco Rogers posted some stuff about the double bind that he experiences as a person of color in tech. And then I think Sarah May was tweeting about some of this as well. And I've just seen a bunch of other people talking about the double bind, where as a woman in tech, you are either told that you are too aggressive or that you're too nurturing or that you're both at the same time, which is a special trick to pull off. Um, have you experienced any of that? I had a manager for five years who every single one of his yearly reviews uh, informed me that I was too aggressive. And I would never move forward in my career unless I was more female. So I ignored his advice because it was bad. Literally, he <laughs> said more female? Yeah. Yeah, I needed to be I need to be more of a woman and more caring and think more about the, you know, the men's feelings around me and uh, that I would make him more comfortable if I changed in that way. So that hasn't happened. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> I'll let you know if it ever does that. I've definitely been on the receiving end of being called aggressive or abrasive. And there's some truth to it because when I know I'm right, I do not yield. I don't have that, that sort of confidence that I'm that right all the time. But when it does come up, I am relentless in my pursuit of doing the right thing. And that has definitely caused me a lot of trouble in the past. How do you think your career would have been different if you had taken that advice? I don't think that I can physically take that advice. I don't think when I went to go and build the game, I don't think I would have survived that environment. It's an interesting world of video games where, and it's funny because I have done video games twice. Media Station is actually a game studio. So I don't learn from my failures, apparently. But I think if I would have taken that advice and wouldn't have learned how to stand my ground, I, I don't think that I would have been as successful at, at ZeniMax Online Studios as I was. So... I don't know. I, I think that this double standard between you have to be more warm and more nurturing while, you know, you're too aggressive, but I need you to be more aggressive and I need you to defend your decisions. I think that it's just bad advice. And you really have to find your own way in the situation that you're at at the time, if that makes sense. Definitely. I'm interested in hearing about how working at a gaming company was different from working in a more traditional, what we think of tech environment. I have a friend who does, she specializes in programming AI for bosses in video games. And she's told me some real horror stories about what game studios are like and the grind and the long hours. And I'm curious how your experience was in that industry and maybe why you left it. So there's an old David Foster Wallace essay called A Supposedly Fun Thing That I Will Never Do Again. In that case, it's about him being on a cruise ship, which is also a supposedly fun thing that I don't really want to do again. The video game industry is both amazing and terrifying. And uh, I call out to all my friends who are still in it. Hi, you're still there. I will parachute you guys in like hot dogs and other edible food that we can shove under the doors. Uh, <laughs> so you can get food. Uh, shout out to my friends at Blizzard and Ubisoft and Stuart Zenimax. 
It is the group of the most passionate people to work with that I have ever worked with in my life. Uh, these are people who love what they're doing. Uh, they live for it. They breathe it. They play their own games. They eat their own dog food. Uh, they play other games for fun and for work. Uh, they do nothing but read Kotaku all day. And they know every single thing that's coming out on the game schedule. They know every conference, every subconference, every blog, every major person on Twitter. These people live and die and breathe video games, and they are terrific to work with. And if anybody ever has a chance to do it, I actually highly recommend the experience. But it was also an experience in getting things done extremely fast, understanding what is important and what is not, learning how to sort of weed out the egos from the job that has to be done because code has to be delivered. It is an educational experience in how to handle the pressure from social media. Uh, it's one thing to see one piece of feedback or one tweet on your product, and it's another thing to see it on Twitter fall when it's coming at 10,000 tweets in a half an hour. Those are two very different experiences, <laughs> and I have had them both. When it comes to shipping, it is a very high-pressure environment. In a lot of places, the teams do pull together, and they do pull together to get the job done. There is a lot of frustration. A lot of people sort of lose their patience and leave. But there's also a feeling of satisfaction when it gets out the door. It is a lot of hours. It is a lot of hard work. It is a lot of dedication. You have to want to be there. And I wanted to be there. The reason I left is because there was just some internal factors. Uh, he, he launched a AAA MMO, and the parent studio is not happy with the launch, and they're sort of interfering with everything now. And there's sort of some standard Zenimax stories that you'll hear from anybody else. And part of it was just some burnout at the end of that. And I just, I needed to go do something else for a little while. Uh, hilariously, I just wanted to downshift. So I went back to startups because <laughs> I was looking for something <laughs> slightly slower. But no, it's a, it's a terrific experience. And a lot of people, I still talk to them, people who I worked with there, I still talk to them every day. And it's, it's, a, it's a sort of environment where you form uh, friendships for life. I think I have a good understanding of um, what you did at ZDMAX. You painted a picture for us. How does that compare to what you're doing at Upside now? So it's funny because uh, I really started on the ground floor here and I got to think long and hard about uh, learn lessons about what we did really well and what we didn't do so well and pulled uh, a lot of the management direction that I felt worked really well and brought it here. Uh, Zenimax was for a very long time. It was a very move fast and break things environment. And I'm a big fan of move fast and break things. So brought that ethos here. Learned the pluses and minuses of Agile versus Kanban versus team size, team communication, overhead, scaling. A lot of those lessons I, I brought here. But I also tried to leave some of the grind on the floor simply because I believe this is a marathon and not a sprint. Uh, video game companies, uh, most of their QA is outsourced contracts. So they don't really care if they burn people out on third shift. And I have more of an eye towards uh, long term of growing people and growing their careers and retaining them and uh, making people better people than the way I found them. So that's a that's a plus and that's a minus. Uh, the video game industry, except for Ubisoft, call it to Ubi, a lot of places, they're not really big in investment uh, over the long term. And I think it's very important uh, when building a, a healthy culture 
to have investment on a personal level and on an organizational level. So just a little bit more of the CTO thinking of how we really should be as a people and as a department and as a company instead of just as a thing that needs to ship a thing out the door to the hordes that are waiting to play their game. So that's sort of the difference here than what I experienced before. You know, and also it's very important for people who can be together to be together, right? People need to be together on a mission. So we try to build build mission here, which is also important. People need to come to work every day and feel like they're doing a thing that's important. But so that's upside. That's a little bit of what we've done different here than we've done it in previous gigs. Uh, another thing that we've done here is that We've hired a lot more women here. We have women engineers uh, who are working on main product. Uh, we have engineers of color who are working on main product, which is super cool. DC is a really cool tech city because we both have uh, historical black colleges here, like Howard College and, and Howard University. They're out by Shaw and uh, University of Maryland, uh, College Park, uh, UMCP plus Virginia Tech. And because the government has these uh, requirements for diversity in hiring and diversity in advancement, we end up having just a larger influx of diverse candidates that come to us. So we're very, very lucky in the DC environment. And we get to pick from people who otherwise may not be able to have the same opportunity out in Silicon Valley. So it's really cool that we can set up diversity initiatives here and we can bring in more people. Uh, we have people that have worked all over from all different industries and all different backgrounds. And it, it just makes upside, especially upside tech side of things, more vibrant than a lot of places I've been. So, Emily, you're now CTO. Um, was it an upside that you made the transition from being more of a software engineer to more of a manager? So I actually started making the transition from an engineer to a manager all the way back when I worked at MerchantLink, which is a transaction processor in Silver Spring, Maryland. When I had my very first report, and then he quit on me, and then I had my very second report. That was exciting. And then when I moved to ZeniMax, that was when I, I was heavily introduced to hiring teams. When I moved to Luminol in uh, 2014, I was introduced to hiring and building departments. And then when I, I came to Upside, I started uh, building the engineering department. So I've been on this track since about 2009. I feel like I'm on my second time around in software development. The first time I took a management track and got up to sea level, but I found that the further away I got from code, the less happy I was. So around... 2013, 2012, 2013, I actually went back to being an individual contributor. I found that the things that I liked about management in terms of like mentoring and team building and having some decision-making authority, I could get as a principal engineer. So do you find that that's, that's your experience too? Is that, is that what you like about management and do you ever miss coding? I don't actually, well, I'm going to take that back on the missing coding because my daughter came to me with wanting to program a simulation about doing bacterial spread infections. And I spent the next six hours reading SIR algorithms and going through all the differential equations and then finding out how to implement them in Python and then figuring out reading a bunch of example code about how to implement them for zombie outbreaks and then using a whole bunch of the MATLAB stuff to pull in various maps of the United States to simulate zombie outbreaks 
makes the United States. So apparently I do miss coding. So I'm not going to say I don't <laughs> because, right? So if you ask me to go to look into a problem, I'll just go right down the rabbit hole. One of the things I'm especially good at and was the, the real sweet spot for me, The one of the roles I really enjoyed was the architect hat, which isn't really so much coding anymore, but thinking about projects on a large scale. So in, instead of just thinking about my one piece of code really deep, right? So if you're writing like some kind of file system and you're trying to deal with some of the L1, L2 cache miss algorithms for your file system, that's you're really going really deep in some operating system driver. So so that's like a, the principal engineer right there all the way down to the middle. And uh, my sweet spot was, and I've noticed this ever since grad school, so this is not some new thing, was the ability to think about all the pieces in the system and be able to hold them in my head and have them all work and then be able to follow the little traces in my head. It's like having your own little tracing system that runs, but, you know, in your head where nobody can see it, which isn't terribly useful to the team, but, you know, it's incredibly useful to me. And uh, to be able to work through some of those systems in Alibum, then be able to communicate back with, you know, product and UX and engineers and whoever else had a stake in it. All right, here's how the system is. Here's the implications. Here's what we're going to do. We can design this. I still have some pretty decent whiteboard skills this day. It's interesting because I've taken that piece of skill set of being able to hold everything in my head at once, and I've transposed it onto people instead of just things. So sometimes I, I joke and claim that I just see everybody who's in engineering just as a process list. I'm just walking through doing a PS-EF and seeing what everybody's doing and what exactly they're working on. And I can see all the processes running at once and how they're scheduling on the processor that is upside, which I think drives my direct reports nuts. But I, I largely take sort of the optimization program that I was running on systems and transposed it to people and how we deal with various things that are not working and how we rearrange systems and how we grow systems in a way that we can scale out the entire uh, department, the entire business, and how it interfaces with things like customer service or marketing or our growth team and, and how they all sort of have little inputs and exports and how everything should work together. And I, I think I do drive people a little bit nutty because I will talk about it in sort of a very dry engineering way of, you know, here's how this should work and here's how this process should communicate and here's my deck and here's the steps go. But it's worked really well for getting upside off the mark and, and getting us from, you know, 10 people to 100. It's been a useful skill. I don't think I would go back to building code. I don't think I would go back to writing things other, other than fun evening projects, trying to get TensorFlow running or whatever I'm playing with today. Uh, I actually don't miss being an individual contributor. So that's was, that was kind of long-winded, but that was my answer. No, that was really interesting. I have not done management track at all, and I'm not sure that I ever ever want to. Um, the thought of like kind of moving in that direction is scary to me, but it was really a fresh perspective to see how you thought about it. So thank you. You are welcome. It is interesting to hear about the idea of treating uh, systems of people the way that you, well, at least in part, the way that you might treat a system uh, of code. I will tell you that people are way more difficult. In computers do exactly what you tell them to do, and people <laughs> never do what you tell them to do. Like, literally never. And, and you just want to walk around and, like, hook a debugger up to them and try to figure out where the code is wrong. 
<laughs> Leadership is super interesting. It's mostly putting out your vision and trying to build these North Stars and say, you know, we need to as a team get to the North Star, but I really just want an MVP of this thing. So please just give me a little skateboard and we'll get to the North Star. Be patient, but just, just give me a little, little bit of this. Awesome. Now ship it now. <laughs> <laughs> But it's fun. It's, it's fun in a different way. Um, I want to take a second to give a shout out to our newest $25 level sponsor, um, Reese Rigdon. I hope I'm not mispronouncing your name. Reese is on Twitter as Risukari, R-I-S-U-I-K-A-R-I. And I want to remind people that as a Patreon, you get access to our exclusive Slack community. I think we just passed 100 people. Is that right, Sam? And we talk uh, 200, in fact, 200. Wow. We talk about things that come up after listening to the show. Um, you have the ability to suggest guests, to suggest questions to our guests and to just be around like-minded people who understand that software is about people and that we are all greater than code. So if you'd like to join that community, please um, go to patreon.com slash greater than code, pledge at any level and we'll get you in. You help make this show happen. So thanks to all 200 of you. So Emily, I'm curious. At the beginning, you talked about the importance of a PhD if you wanted to go into something like data science. And we really haven't touched on data science very much. Have you intersected with data science at any point in your career? And what do you see? I, I, in my personal experience, I see a lot more women in data science than in software engineering. And I'm curious if that's been your experience as well. Yeah, this is interesting because it's sort of a two-pronged question. Uh, so my first integration with data science was actually at Cinemax. Uh, we stood up a giant data science system basically from scratch and hired a bunch of data scientists and discovered really horrifying facts about our game. We built fun simulations like the death map where you could bring up the entire map of the MMO and just see where everybody was dying at. So those were really cool. <laughs> so that was like one of the best applications of data science was just, but you could watch like heat maps of what quests people were playing and what content was doing really well and what content wasn't doing so well. Uh, that was an introduction there. The entire premise of Upside is actually built on data science. And we've recently really put down the hammer on building a, a data science department. And yeah, I have noticed that uh, a lot more data, much larger proportion of women in data science than there are in straight up software engineering. I suspect it's because we're looking for people in more of the hard sciences where there's been a shift that's been moving since even the late 80s. I know that it's in economics, it's really bad. I, I read that flame war on Twitter. There's another iteration of it going on economics Twitter right now about there's no women in economics. I, I've seen that one. But I do know that in, in biology and chemistry and in applied mathematics, and especially astronomy, astronomy was a big one for a long time because it was almost entirely male dominated. There's been a, a large shift to uh, being sort of this 90-10 to being closer to maybe a 60-40 representation. So when you put out a call for data scientists, we get a really good gender mix between men and women who come in and apply. Uh, and I, I would need to go upstairs and count. All of that scientists just a poofed appeared one day here. It was sort of remarkable. Uh, but we're running about 50-50. 
in our gender diversity split here at Upside, which is super cool. Uh, majority of them do have PhDs. They don't always have PhDs in applied mathematics. Uh, they do come from a diverse background. I believe it's because data science largely came up through the bio track, through uh, genomics and bioinformatics, where uh, all the way back to my working in hospital IT, where everything was a little bit more gender parity. Uh, there's been a lot of gender parity moving in biology and the medical fields for a really long time. Uh, it was very, very bad in the 80s, but it sort of moved in a much more positive direction there. And in the genomics field, it's pretty much a 50-50 split. And you can reach in, you can get people who did data science there. And a lot of data scientists say that they don't really care uh, the nature of the problem. They just really care about the data and doing actual science to the data that they collect. So it's a little bit different of thinking about things. It's a huge growing ripe field and it's getting people from all over. It's not just this one skinny pipeline of software engineers going through college, coming out, taking software engineer roles. So that's my theory. I would need to look at the data to understand if that's really correct or, all, or not. But a theory seems to be bearing itself out pretty well. One of the things that I worry about with any job that has pretty high college qualifications is that you're self-selecting for people who have a lot of privilege. Um, you're self-selecting for people who have the ability to afford to go to a master's program or a PhD program. And I worry that that means that we're selecting for upper middle class white women as opposed to focusing on other dimensions of diversity. Has that been your experience too? I think that is probably true. You know, I went to Michigan and one thing that Michigan engineering, which doesn't overlap with data science, but that's my background. One thing Michigan engineering was very proud of was its scholarship programs for merit for uh, underprivileged children who are coming out of Detroit. I can't speak about through any other university or any other university's program and props to my homies at Michigan. All right, go blue. There was a lot of outreach and a lot of work to bring in students that came from, especially Detroit in particular, but also from, you know, Saginaw and Flint in the sticks, uh, bringing them in and getting them into programs where they would shine. I just don't know. I know that like Harvard is hideously unbalanced. 30% of the freshman class are all legacy and, you know, other bits of nonsense. I'm hoping that places like, so my husband went to uh, Maryland College Park. He actually was chemistry and not computers. And um, he was there for a whole bunch of years, actually. They were a very diverse department, too, and were very big about reaching into D.C. and serving underprivileged students and getting them into uh, graduate programs. I don't know. Uh, so I don't have a good answer for that. As I guess my long-winded answer is, <laughs> I know that the public universities are trying to uh, do something about that problem, and I can't speak to the private universities. I can't speak to the the Harvards or the Sanfords of the world. I do find it interesting that you mentioned that you're drawing a lot of talent from the other STEM fields, and especially bio. I have the impression that there are not as many jobs in those other fields and they don't pay as well. So I wonder if tech is managing to attract a bunch of those people just because of all of the money that's currently here. I have a different theory, which is oh, that good. my theory is that they all went to fintech in New York and fintech isn't all that hot anymore. And now they're all moving into the next field. <laughs> Financial tech, you mean? Yeah. 
for a while, especially before the Great Recession, uh, fintech was draining data scientists out of the universe. Really? Oh. Yes. There was a huge move. It was especially PhD physicists where it was the biggest one. But physicists, mathematicians, uh, they were being pulled very heavily out of academia and out of the bio and moved into fintech where there was a lot of money to be made very fast. And it looked like the problems were interesting because if you're hiding vast amounts of fraud in the financial system, I guess it's true, then problems are interesting. And with the crash and regulation and, you know, I, I saw a little bit in The Economist recently talking about the return of some of the uh, synthetic CDOs and I, I made a face. So I'm sure that they'll all be pulled back to New York sooner or later, but it was like the crash came and then they all went to a whole bunch of different industries, mostly to tech. So there is a diaspora, but not from where I thought it was. That's really cool. Thank you. Yeah. When you were talking about the demographics of the data scientists earlier, you mentioned that you uh, would have to get the data on that, which in addition to being very deliciously meta to me, um, it made me start to think about the ways that data kind of describes our lives. And a lot of cool stuff has come out of that. But I think that people have also been starting to realize that it's kind of scary in some ways that data contains so much information about us. So I know that this is kind of a big question, but I wonder what your opinion is about where that line is. There's a very useful book that's out called Weapons of Math Destruction, M-A-T-H, Destruction by Kathy O'Neill, uh, who is also a data scientist who originally was teaching and then went to fintech and then left. So at the end of the day, we're just talking about algorithms that take training data and do computation on them and largely some fancy calculus and some matrix transformations and some curve fitting and then spit out weights. And that's largely what data science does is it's an optimization problem. The problem comes from those models, right? So we build models and we identify features on them that we actually want to test against and optimize for some of the data science language. And we try to build a model around a program a problem, right? So an interesting problem that you can try to solve for is I would like to predict uh, what is the fashions that are going to come out of the New York runway based on the Paris fashion show. Uh, I read an interesting blog article where somebody did exactly that and took all of the pictures and fed it into a model and it started generating possible fashions and did a bunch of categorization and clustering. It's, it's interesting because you can see, you know, which uh, designers have what kind of styles or what kind of styles are popular, or how things are sort of moving through the style world. That is a very neutral model. It doesn't really help people or hurt people unless you're really into the fashion world and you're spending lots of money on it, then it might, you know, suck some money on your wallet. But models can be used in a variety of ways. And it's all based more or less on the training data that it's given. And if the training data that it starts with is impure or is biased or it doesn't have the right information that's framing it, and it's just pushed through one of these models to the other side, it can definitely be a source of harm. In Kathy O'Neill's book, uh, her opening chapter talks about the uh, DC school systems and that they were trying to filter out the good teachers from the bad teachers. And the training data that was going into a model that was done by some company in Boston that nobody had any say over, they were, were taking basically the change in students' test scores a year after year. 
So, you know, the teachers figure this out and they would either cheat or they would game the system in some way that it would show that students would have this massive gain in their test scores during their year, during the tenure with that teacher. And then they would hand them off to a teacher the next year and the teacher thinking that she was getting these students that had performed in these particular test scores that they would be at a certain level. They would come into her classroom and they would be like two or three levels below that. And then she would get you know, hit by the model that say, oh, well, you know, your scores have really dropped because you ended up the year before cheated. And some teachers who were excellent teachers lost their jobs because they were given some random score that came out of this model that was clearly had some curve overfitting problems that were associated with it. The teachers had recommendations and, and they found other, other jobs, but it definitely damaged the reputation of not just the model and the process, but also the school system. And we see that a lot. Uh, one of the big places that these models are used is in advertising dollars. It's probably the, the biggest place that we know of is used in advertising dollars. And we're seeing it right now with all of the brouhaha over Facebook and Russians spending money on it and highly optimizing it. Yeah, it's got a neural net model that's sitting on the back that you say, hey, I need you to optimize for people who live in Western Michigan that have labeled themselves as Republican and Christian because it's that, you know, they pick up these profiles of people and the algorithm knows how to get ads directly to their very targeted eyeballs. And it's cheap because you're maybe only putting out a thousand ads instead of a television ad, which you pay for spots for, you know, whatever it costs for all those eyeballs at once. Yeah, so there's some strong negatives about that science. On the other hand, if you start talking about, say, the, the genomics fields, Data science is extremely powerful when trying to do combinatorial mathematics for finding new drugs, right? Otherwise, we would have to run the simulations on thousands of these drugs, and it's very expensive, and it's very slow. And we start dropping the costs of drugs over time because now the cost of research is going down because we can have AIs largely be able to just get rid of all of the negatives before we even take a look at them. So data science is a big plus and minus. Uh, we're building a giant data science department here at Upside because we have an interesting problem, which is travel data. And travel data turns out to be huge. Uh, we were getting three terabytes of data a day and had to sift through all of that to be able to find you know, flights and hotels for people. So the, the big question, right, is how do we start building automated choppers and sorting around your preferences to be able to sort of push all of the poor flights that have like two connections, don't have any Wi-Fi, or the plane's not comfortable. How do we push all that stuff to the bottom and bring up all of the, the flights and hotels that you know are quality up to the top? So it turns out to be uh, pricing is a huge data science problem where there's a combination of how do you set margins versus how do you find quality versus how do you set preferences versus uh, how do you get in other stakeholders' uh, needs into the data to be able to bring up something that's of high quality to the customer. So in, in that sense, we give people quality and reduce the amount of time searching and be able to build trust. So in that way, the, the model is a very positive model because we're basically an automated shopper that's for that person's needs. That sounds like a really interesting problem. Like when you were describing it, it seems almost like building a program that can think the way that a human might think about what a human's preferences would be. 
it's not quite i wouldn't try to humanize it like that it's a machine that knows from the way that we've pushed data through it it knows what is good and it knows what is not good based to a whole lot of data that it's seen in the past and based on knowing what was good in the past it can make a suggestion about what it thinks will be good in the future that's the thing to remember about data science and all these models, especially I know that Facebook has them and Twitter has them and Google has them and everybody's talking about how cool all this AI is and if it's good or if it's evil. The thing to remember about it is that these AI models, they're not sentient. They only know what happens in the past because you fed the past to it. And it can only make suggestions about the future if no conditions ever change. And that's the thing <laughs> to remember about these models, right? The moment that conditions change in some way, the model is invalid. And the answer that is given are now wrong. So it, it's not like a human that can take in new ideas and sort through them and synthesize them and then from that be able to have a new answer. It needs to be told something has changed and sometimes when something's changed drastically, it needs to be rewritten from scratch and rebuilt. That's why it's so good for something like spam because spam just this this same kind of patterns over and over again. We have an infinite amount of trading data. We just sort of push it through that and it's like, oh, this is spam, this is not spam. And it just gets better over time because it has a bigger and bigger data set. That reminds me, um, I need to spend my $25 Amazon gift certificate, get some new windows, and remodel my bathroom. Amazon's got some great, has some great models that if you go and it suggests you, you're buying this, here's the other five things that you might like. It, it does a terrific job. I've seen that fail pretty gloriously. <laughs> I got a recommendation. Oh, yeah. I actually took a screen capture of this because it was so good. They recommended a septum to me because I had bought the zombie survival guide. Yes, that's amazing. It thinks you'd love that. Based on your past purchases and past searches, it thinks that's perfect for you because you bought the zombie survival guide. I literally just bought weapons of math destruction on Amazon like while we were talking. So I just went back to Amazon to see what it's recommending me. And it's still just like, you should probably buy Star Wars Legos. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds like me. <laughs> yeah, well, why wouldn't you buy Star Wars Legos? Is there a, a Porg Lego yet? Does anybody know if they put out the Porg yet as a Lego? I think they have. The last Jedi Legos have come out. <laughs> I, I have to get the Porg Chewy for my dog. I have to get one. That's why I was looking at them, because the new TIE Fighter Lego sets came out already for the new movie, and I was like, yes. <laughs> See? The algorithm absolutely knows what you want. It does. It does. It's <laughs> so maybe it is sentient, but only in Amazon. And then, of Alexa. course, there are the cases where you buy something that you only buy once every five years, like a refrigerator, and then Amazon says, here are five other refrigerators you might be interested in. <laughs> well, you might want to buy five other refrigerators. Have you considered it? You're a refrigerator enthusiast Well, I now. will now. I think about that. It's I, I spent a lot of time searching for very strange books on Amazon, so it's totally confused what I want. So you talked about the importance of feeding good data to your model, which is something that we've talked about indirectly a few times on this show. I wonder if that's something where having people with a uh, background in doing actual science is helpful. Does that training include skills on how to analyze the quality of your data and find where the biases in it are? Absolutely. So that is a big yes, especially if you start pulling people from economics who understand the, I mean, I know that they're trying to make everybody be a rational actor and humans are not rational actors, but 
it, it does give them the training to look for biases and to keep them from reflecting their own opinions in the data and allow the data to talk for itself to get down to real answers, which I have found from building a startup and a business to be unbelievably powerful. I'm curious if that extends further to identifying bias in the data itself, like the canonical example there being something like predictive policing, where you're basing it, you're feeding it data that's based on biased uh, arrest reports and so on. So there's a chapter in Weapons of Math Destruction where she actually talks about this exact issue Perfect. of building. Uh, so I highly recommend the book if you're very interested in where data science is falling down. But uh, there's several companies that are startups out there. Most of them are San Francisco startups that are trying to take a lot of policing data and push it through models to be able to predict clusters of possible crime so that police cruisers can be dispatched with higher efficiency. But because it only knows about the past and it doesn't know about the future and it knows that poor communities have a larger occurrence of low value crime, right? Somebody graffiti or, you know, someone going to the bathroom in an alleyway or whatever, right? It makes it look like there's a larger cluster of actual crime right there, but it's never going to pick out someone committing fraud because that's a lower incidence of the crime. So you're not going to dispatch cruisers to go around in lower Manhattan uh, looking for incidents of fraud, although we know it's all there. It's going to go and dis dispatch to, you know, the Bronx and because there's a higher propensity of lower value crime and that just happens to be what's in the data. So data can be a reflection of a human being's biases. And one thing we must be careful about is that we are not reflecting human being biases in the data when we filter into the model because the model is just going to amplify those biases. And always keep it in mind that the model only knows about the past, then we know that the model can inadvertently have racist overtones and tendencies, even though it's just a machine doing mathematical computation. It can look like it has racist tendencies if we happen to put that kind of data through the model, if that's what we're looking for. So it's a curve-fitting problem. It's a matter of putting the correct data from the beginning to train the model so that it does not have biases and what pops out of it is something that approximates the truth. And that's where we really get in trouble with data science, right? Everything's a logistics problem in the universe. And we want to be able to dispatch and deploy our resources that we have because we don't have many of them on the problems that are of the number one most highest priority thing that we have on the table. And if we're Putting our biases of what we think is the number one highest priority thing, it's not really, but that's what we're putting it. We put in the model and it tells us, yeah, you were right. That is really the highest priority. You should send all your police cars down to that neighborhood because that's really where all the crime is. Then it becomes a self-perpetuating process. And it's something we need to be very cognizant of as we build all of these systems out. So what training do we have and what training do we need that would help us identify that's a really good question. I think part of it is simply having an understanding of what the problem is from an unbiased point of view. And it's hard to get to that place. So you're basically saying we're screwed. Uh, I don't <laughs> I don't think we're screwed. I think that we, we need to understand that these are just machines and they're not all knowing, certainly not yet. And that we need to be cognizant that we may be pushing our own human foibles into them. Yeah. 
my joke was basically just saying that if we need to be able to look at something from an unbiased perspective and we're all humans here, uh, that's kind of got a big strap problem. <laughs> right. We're at the point where we should start wrapping up. Is there anything else, Emily, you wanted to touch on before we do that? Uh, the only thing that I want to bring up really briefly is just back to the very beginning, the women in engineering topic. Uh, one thing that has come out of all of the women in engineering talk right now is really the importance of mentorship and internships for women who are very young and early in their career to be able to get the, the encouragement that they need. And even me on my side, I think it's someplace that we're falling down across the entire industry right now at starting from high school, maybe even starting in middle school. I see it with my daughter. She's in seventh grade, right? Her science teacher is trying like crazy to encourage her. And, you know, she lives in a tech home, so she's got plenty of encouragement there. But you know, I see it all along the pipeline and just as wrapping up as we're talking about women in engineering and data science and getting people more and more involved in the industry as a whole, that I think that it should start at the beginning. And instead of thinking about, oh, they're in college, they just come out, how can we keep them here? I think we need to talk about how do we keep them in seventh grade computer classes. Coraline had asked a question about how do you think your career would have been different if you had taken this bad advice from somebody and I wanted to ask the opposite question. How do you think your career would have been different if you had had more women on your teams and women peers from earlier on in your career? Hmm. How would have been different if I had more women peers? It's an interesting question. I'm trying to imagine what that would be like. I think I would have gone for my PhD. Uh, I think I wouldn't have finished at, at master's. I think I would have gone all the way and that would have been a significant difference. I, I probably would have pushed into management a lot earlier as well. There was never any encouragement from it on my side. It was just me just going to get things done. I think I probably would have moved faster and harder in my career than I did. And I probably would have taken a few more risky opportunities that were on the table than I did. So, Emily, at the end of our shows, we like to do a little section where everybody gets to reflect on one thing that really struck them and made them think about what we talked about in today's episode. I have been thinking a lot about bias, and we talked about bias in terms of machine learning, but there's another kind of bias that um, I was thinking about, and that is like my experience with being self-taught, with being a college dropout, I think I am biased toward hiring people with a similar background story to me, people who have taken the initiative on their own to learn what they need to learn to break into our field. And um, I know I definitely have a bias towards people with that story and probably because it resonates with me in terms of my background. And I get the sense, and Emily, I hope this isn't unfair, that you have a bias toward people with degrees because that's how you came up and came into the field. And I think we think a lot about biases in terms of um, negative impact on things like diversity and getting, you know, more people in the tech from, you know, different ethnicities or different genders or different socioeconomic backgrounds. But I want to think a little bit more about like other hiring biases, like the resumes that do get to the top of the stack. Are we favoring people with higher degrees? Or are we favoring people with no degrees? So that's something I want to think about a little more. Following on to that. We've talked about bias uh, a fair bit, and I wanted to mention 
that it's well worth your time to do a little bit of research into the various cognitive biases that we have as humans that we all inherit. Because knowing about a cognitive bias doesn't necessarily mean that you can vanquish it once and for all. It's always going to be there. But not knowing about a bias means that you're going to fall into that trap every single time. And so even just going and looking at the Wikipedia page list of cognitive biases, it's super educational and you'll learn something about yourself right away. For my reflection, I am thinking more about how computers aren't people and how, what we said about that, um, which sounds so obvious when I word it like that. But I think that people in general have a real tendency to anthropomorphize things. I know that I certainly do, but I think a lot of people do. And that's how we end up with like Siri and Alexa and like these computers that we speak to like they're people. And I was really interested in what Emily was saying about how computers can't think like people because they can't take in new information and change their minds the way people can. And a lot of the technology that is kind of cutting edge these days is kind of scary for me. I'm kind of a little bit of like a skeptic in that way. But that really hit the nail on the head about what's scary about it to me. So I was really happy to have heard that perspective so I can now think more heavily on it and how it makes me feel about tech. So thank you. Uh, my reflection is that uh, I really enjoyed doing the podcast. Uh, this was a fantastic experience and thank you all so much for inviting me on your show. And I really enjoyed it. And my reflection is that I really do enjoy teaching. It's interesting to be able to sort of talk and dig onto uh, a topic with uh, interesting people like yourselves uh, and uh, just sort of reflect on uh, sort of computers and people and society and what it all means. Great. Well, thank you very much for being here. We've really enjoyed this conversation, and I think our listeners will enjoy it as well. And looking forward to seeing how people react to the podcast in our Slack community and some of the ideas we brought up today. We've definitely covered a lot of ground. So thank you very much. And to all our listeners, we love you, and we will talk to you again very soon. Bye.